Hello, hello, everyone. My name is Christine, and I'm your host for the Politic Podcast. And so Christmas is around the corner, and I know what y'all are thinking. Last-minute gifts for your family, friends, and just gathering food. And we wanted just to today talk about environmental issues that are impacting not only in our families, but also in Toronto as well. So be sure to listen carefully in our next segment. Welcome to Politic. Would you please be able to share who you are, where you come from, and what your group does? Hi, my name is Rachel. I'm the founder of Evo Creatives, and we essentially are a social enterprise in Toronto that live at the intersection of the arts and the environment. And so we offer environmental services for the live music industry here in Toronto. Hi, my name is Anna Karen. Thank you so much for having me here today. I am the external executive liaison for U-Turn, which is the University of Toronto Environmental Resource Network. And U-Turn is a levy organization that operates as a funding body and networking hub for any person, group, or club within the university community that's interested in sustainability and environmentalism on campus. Thank you for having me today. My name is Vanessa Liu, co-founder of our nonprofit organization called Go Green Toronto. Our organization is dedicated in raising environmental awareness and helping business and consumers to make greener choices. Next. 2019 has been a big year for advocacy, especially surrounding the environment and climate change. With this in mind, can you remind us what are the key issues leading to mobilizing so many groups? Yeah, so 2019 has been a big year for the youth movement within the climate change um, crisis. I think thanks to Greta Thunberg, uh, ever since she started the strike for climate, um, she really she changed the narrative of the climate crisis and put youth within the forefront of the issue. And I think also 2019 being um, an election year also drew a lot of attention to the movement um, because a big wave of youth were able to vote within this election and a big issue that's on their mind and that will have most impact. Well, climate change is an issue that will impact everyone, but some people more. And I think youth are really facing that, that threat moving forward. So we wanna ensure So I think different groups' purposes are different, but all movements comes down to one word, which is change. We feel like we cannot keep doing things the way we are doing right now. It is something that's important and urgent, and it affects not a certain ratio, not a certain age group. It is affecting every single one of us. We only have one home, which is our Earth. And it is time that we make changes to take good care of it, just like taking care of our own house. Okay, so like Anna was saying, Greta played a huge, um, if not central role in mobilizing a lot of this uh, or bringing to light this movement that's been happening for a long time. And I think she created a lot of space for sub-movements within the entire environmental movement. So. For instance, climate change is going to disproportionately impact um, typically um, vulnerable communities, which are often uh, communities of color. And so 
that's given space for indigenous voices to come up for newcomers, immigrant families, people who live in um, low income communities that are maybe flood in flood prone zones or in high rise buildings that are now um, poorly ventilated. And so with increasing heat waves, that's an environmental justice issue. And so I think, and then she's done a good job in giving space to, to those voices, but um, creating this movement, um, I think she's just bringing it to light because it's there's been a lot of champions behind it for a long time. Media portrayal of climate change has varied from network to network, but most stories covering cl climate rallies also label climate change as a crisis. How much do you think people's perspectives and habits have changed due to the recent exposure to the climate action movements? Um, I think it's important to also realize that within the environmental world, there is the optimist and pessimist debate, right? Starting a famous pessimist was Paul Ehrlich, who was a biologist, I believe, professor at Stanford. And then um, optimist was Julian Simon, who was an economist. And it goes to show that within the environmental sector, there's depending on what profession, typically bi biologists and natural sciences will see, say that we're heading into a tipping point and we have to completely change what we're doing now. We're in a crisis zone. And it's a very alarmist approach, whereas the optimists will say that, yes, there are changes, but human ingenuity will get us out of it. So it's funny because both optimists and pessimists will say, media coverage is given to either side. More of it is given to one side than the other. So that's where the debate lies. But I do think to an extent, having an alarmist point of view is important to mobilize individuals. But it's, it's also important to not just point fingers at people and give the blame. Because in this alarmist approach, that's the all, also something that can happen. And when you're pointing fingers and saying, oh, but you're you're not changing your lifestyle in this way. You're not, you know, eating, you're eating meat all the time, or you're doing stuff like that. That's also a dangerous zone because it kind of unmotivates people to get involved. It excludes them from this movement. And if anything, the climate change movement requires everyone to be on board. So, so it's important to see the debate within the environmental world, the optimist pessimist when looking at media coverage and trying to be informed of the two. So building off what was said, it's it's true in that fear tactics and those scare kind of approaches in terms of educating the public or getting um, them to act is not extremely effective and there have been studies to show that you know, that's only effective for 20% of the population. So that's who you see out, that's how you see making change when they see documentaries or um, different pieces of media like that. Um, the rest of the 80%, you know, maybe there's this thing called apocalypse fatigue that some people experience. And so that leads them to not actively not look um, at the media at certain stories, um, kind of be dismissive and um, sort of naive to this huge global um, catastrophe coming to us. Um, I think it's important to understand how difficult it is to create behavior change. So while the strikes are good in creating awareness, in terms of individual behavior change, there there's a cycle. And so I think it was put like 
I can't remember the name, but these two clinical psychologists that um, have this cycle of change for behavior starts with pre-contemplation, goes to contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, um, and so on. And so a lot of environmental groups, they kind of target people who are in the preparation action stage, so they're ready to make a change. They're kind of aware of something going on. And then the vast majority of people are in the pre-contemplation where they don't have any idea of what's going on, um, nor are they expressing an interest in getting involved. You know, they have their own lived realities. It's a privilege to think about the environment, and we forget that sometimes. Um, and oftentimes the environment is not their immediate concern. So it's, it's about engaging um, a huge range of people and understanding that a lot of people are in the pre-contemplation and contemplation stage and to have sort of an empathy-based approach when um, trying to get these people to change their behaviors um, in a way that works within their lived reality and not something that's prescriptive from um, me as a privileged person, um, relatively speaking. Uh, so the, uh, the question asks, uh, how much do you think people's perspective and habits have changed due to the recent climate action movements? Uh, I'm not too sure about the statistics, how people changed, but from what I've seen, people hasn't changed a lot. So in order to make changes, we first need to raise awareness of the issue. But last but not least, we need action items to solve the issue. So yesterday I spent about an hour doing some research about Greta's message and action items. Um, but I saw a lot of her movement focused on protesting government and large businesses in action on climate change. Unfortunately, I haven't seen the movement provide any details about how everyday consumer and small businesses needs to change. So, unfortunately, I haven't seen much action since the movement. Mm -hmm. Although the climate movement has seen major growth in the past year, representation and inclusion of people of color have been lacking. How can the movement create a shift in culture to break down white privilege and become more inclusive of racialized communities? Yeah, so that's a that's a difficult question um, and one I'm trying to answer myself <clears throat> for my own sanity in the environmental movement um, because there there was a study that um, a woman mentioned to me where there was only there's less than four percent of environmental nonprofit organizations that engaged vulnerable communities of color and less than four percent is is terrible um, and even so within working in the environmental field working within a rather large, well-recognized organization, I can see firsthand that diversity and inclusion is extremely lacking. And when it is within internally, it reflects on what the external programs look like. So they tend to forget about certain aspects of social justice that are intertwined with environmental issues. Um, and I, and I, one way that organizations can improve their diversity and inclusion in their organizations is through diversity and inclusion training. So there are a lot of initiatives now that are happening internally and it is important, but it's also important to note that when you do the training, it's not meant to be a one-off and a check mark. It's meant to be the start of a, of a whole process. And for example, having a, a diversity at work uh, committee um, that follows through with specific objectives or targets 
or even embed values within the organization around diversity and inclusion and have people um, from diverse backgrounds um, be the leaders within that community. So that's uh, historically, sustainable options were more expensive, especially in the city, and seems only available to people of certain social class and that can cause a divide in demographics. We hope that uh, this mobilization of these movements can create more options, more awareness for consumers and business, so that no matter your income, race, orientation, sustainable choices are available to everyone. And I feel anyone should feel free to uh, and empowered to start or join this movement. Yeah, I agree with um, what has previously been said. I think just in a general sense, and generally speaking, I'm not sure how much is actually spent by governments into funding environmental movements and initiatives. But I do think there has to be an increase in the funding, more of a shift and making it more of a norm rather than just taking it off a platform, an election platform, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it has to be more focused in the center because what's the point of creating an environmental movement if you're excluding so many communities mm -hmm. who cannot necessarily live an environmentally, quote-unquote, friendly lifestyle? Because shifts in diet, dietary um, ways can also be super expensive. Not everyone has the access to really healthy food or a certain amount or shopping at specific places that don't use as much um, one-use plastic. So I think just creating awareness on that as well is important. It is now more widely understood that a lot of the factors behind the climate crisis lies in our consumption and purchases of products often in disposable packaging. What has been the effect of environmental awareness to influence the products we buy and sell? So I did some research about this uh, climate crisis. For the topic of, topic of climate change, the burning of fossil fuels for energy and animal agriculture are two of the biggest contributors to global warming, along with deforestation. Uh, globally, fossil fuel-based energy is responsible for about 64% of human greenhouse gas emissions, with deforestation about 18% and animal agriculture between 13 to 18%. Uh, all of these three factors contribute to over 90% of global climate change. However, this question is very right about packaging regarding to plastic waste or environmental pollution, with, which is an important issue too. So the fact that the majority of items comes in packaging can make it very difficult for consumers to make greener choices. However, we need to keep in mind that we always have a choice from simple acts like bringing your own mug for coffee or bring your own bag for grocery shopping uh, to skip that bag of chips as much as possible, which is also good for your health. Uh, we can also go to the farmer's market to buy fresh produce instead of 
go to a supermarket and buy heavily packaged produce. And packaging has a lot to do with convenience. Uh, disposable packaging are convenient, easy to manage for consumer and business, and a lot of people are willing to pay extra for convenience. Not only disposable packaging, but also electronics, household appliances, a person's time is limited, so convenience can play a, play a huge role in people's lives, and that's why there is a market for that. I think we just need to raise more environmental awareness for consumers while they are choosing among options. Is that convenience worth the environmental impact or not? I do think that a large portion of people are informed of environmental issues, especially with the whole one use plastic people have been more cognizant there and also the whole plastic straw movement was a big caught a lot of attention especially when you connected it to sea turtles because people like sea turtles so <laughs> so people do know about the effects of of um single-use plastic but i don't know if it has been having the impact that we've strived towards or the environmental movements I've strived towards, because people are still buying a lot of one-use plastic in grocery stores, especially. And I guess it's because that's what's that's what's available. But also, what all what I always think about is Amazon or online shopping. It's risen into in popularity these past few years. And last year, I believe, um, Joff. Jeff Bezos, not Jeff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jeff Be Bezos was um, was asked about what he's going to do about the forty uh, million tons, I believe, of carbon emissions has been emitted, which is almost the equivalent emissions to that of a small nation, not Amazon alone. So, so I think what's happening is people are are still buying all of these non environmentally friendly objects, but now we have more cognitive dissonance when we buy them. We're a bit more aware, but still, there has to be something else, another push to get us off, because we know the harm they're doing, but we're still shopping for that, so yeah. So I'm going to continue on the pessimist train uh, and say that the increase in environmental awareness has given way to a lot of greenwashing, and while it's good that the public has focused on certain things to change in their life, um, which is great for, for you know evolving your lifestyle choices into a more low waste or zero waste life. But um, big organizations like Coca-Cola, for example, now use their environmental initiatives and their community initiatives to hide behind. Um, for example, large large corporations can can make big impact if they make small changes, for example, um, funding cleanups or from shifting to more of a circular economy structure. However, the pace that they're going at doesn't currently align with the crisis that we're in. So for given 12 years, um, you know, said by the United Nations, that doesn't quite line up with the amount of time it will take for them to become part of the circular economy. So now, personally, I had, I had the perspective that we should be partnering with large corporations because their reach is so vast and if they make a tiny change that's huge impact but now that we're in a time of crisis 
there is no place for large corporations um, that continue to waste at the at the the speed that they're going and how they continue to accelerate that and continue to hide behind their environmental initiatives that they're funding, which really is only it's less than two percent of their profits. So if they truly wanted to change, they could and take it take a cut in their profits, but obviously their business, it's not part of the business plan to make those kind of cuts. And that's why there's been so much advocacy to and and going to the streets to get them to change and get them to make those cuts because it's very important. And there's also further issues around greenwashing when it comes to labeling, like eco-labels, for example, even um, for fisheries and aquaculture, there's a lot of mislabeling over seafood. And because there's mislabeling, consumers, even though they're trying, they may not actually be making the right decisions. I myself worked in the eco-certification world and I didn't even know what decision to make because there was so much mislabeling and um, sort of polarized opinions on different labeling schemes. So it's it's mess out there, guys. <laughs> Thanks to the increasing globalization of our products, we are unknowingly contributing to the greenhouse emissions due to the shipping and production. How are we as consumers able to hold companies accountable and account advocate for change manufacturing using green alternatives? So as consumers, we often forget how much power we actually hold. We are we can determine whether a business stays in business or not, depending on how much we buy of it, how much we share of it, um, and spread awareness of that product. So just how we have the power to decide which products we want to buy, it is also important to know which products we are buying. So becoming aware, doing the research beforehand. And I know as Rachel talked about mislabeling and how that's difficult that's to become aware of that, but there are options to, to investigate and also see if, how much packaging there is, you can decide. Um, so yeah, it's, that's where climate science is important to know the effects of our products and Remember, supply and demand, the basic economic model. If we want more, companies are going to be producing more. So, so yeah. Yeah, so like Anna Vanessa said, we have, we have consumer power, purchasing power, and being Gen Y, Gen Z, um, we compose a really large part of the population, so we do have a lot of power through um, what we purchase. I think in terms of focusing on the larger shipping industry, that's that's policy. So there's a lot of environmental organizations that are working internally to develop briefing notes and specific policy recommendations for Fisheries and Oceans Canada, for example. And these include <clears throat> things like gray water that's not regulated right now, things like um, ballast water that bring in invasive species, um, dumping, discharge, disposal. These don't have definitions, and when they don't have definitions, then interpretation then becomes um, becomes at play when when industry is interpreting how if, how they are regulated in terms of uh, their shipping companies so if you are interested in in creating change there's multiple ways that you can go you can go from the advocacy perspective from environmental organizations you can work in politics and be the decision maker 
or you can work on the ground as a grassroots organization trying to make change from bottom up. So there's multiple areas that you can go and target, but ultimately everyone needs to be working together. Uh, I totally agree with Rachel and Anna. I think uh, the best way is to vote with our daughter and some other ways is spread awareness using our knowledge and get involved in environmental groups and politics decision making. Next. In 2018, Canadians produce around 30 million metric tons of food waste. Canada does not have a national food waste strategy and instead it is on the municipalities to process and manage the waste. How can we be more cautious of the food waste we create during the holiday season when we often prepare more food for gatherings? So I want to expand this topic uh, uh, more broad to how to sustainably eat for the holiday season. I found this article from Global Citizen that I highly agree. Uh, the first one is uh, have a diet made up of mostly plants, especially green ones, is better for you and the planet. Animal products in general cost more energy to produce, and livestock release around 20% of total greenhouse gas. The second point is avoid plastic packaging. The vast majority of plastic waste come from food packaging, especially disposable food packaging. So one thing we can do as consumers is to avoid it by purchasing mainly whole foods and seeking out bulk food stores or farmer's market where you can take your own containers. A third point is reduce food waste and uh, compost. Uh, last but not least, you can get creative with leftovers. Uh, what I do is I freeze the leftovers uh, and you can use them later or you can donate them to local shelters. Just to clarify on the last point, um, I think uh, the agricultural or meat industry is, is definitely a huge culprit in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I do think that there needs to be a distinction between subsistence hunting too as well because as Canadians, um, for example, uh, in the Arctic there are communities that have subsistence hunting and so meat inherently isn't necessarily bad but it's the industry that's bad. <clears throat> and, I, and also with, with the holiday season, I think I can also understand the difficulty when it comes to different cultural um, gatherings in terms of what the traditional dishes are. For example, even just coming from Chinese culture, you know, for wedding banquets, there was a shark fin soup, and that was <clears throat> that obviously had certain um, traditional uh, implications or or things that it brought um, in into the celebration, but obviously are unsustainable. And so, there there is a, a shift that needs to happen, but also some cultural sensitivities when it comes to um, food, and I think. The, the way forward is really being more mindful about where it's produced. So local, I would say, would be something that's quite important. Again, the barrier, as was mentioned earlier, is um, in terms of costs, it, it is sometimes more expensive to buy local. Um, and so really, yeah, the onus goes on to um, the consumer, unfortunately, and it should be going um, onto the larger institutions and the systems 
and how we need to kind of decolonialize our food system here. But that's such a that's a larger issue than just holiday your holiday meal. It's also important to notice though that with agri businesses there is a trade off. So yes, they're really big. They emit a lot of pollution and they overproduce of a certain produce. Um, I can give you the example of chickens. There's a lot there, <laughs> way too many. We don't need that much meat. We don't need meat three times a day. Um, but that's the culture that these agricultural businesses have created and that we have let happen. Um, yes, but at the same time, they save on land space, right? And regular agriculture uses a lot of landscape that uh, that is also in many cases clear cutting forests. So it's it's a trade off and trying to figure out well, what what's important and what do we value. I'm not saying one's particularly better than the other, but not one is better than the other either, right? So, and with the holiday season, just how there's trade offs there, we should incorporate more trade offs within the food waste or the f- amount of food that we create in the holiday season. There's not a need to create so much that has been kind of a norm that everyone bring like two pies or at least in my household that's how it is there's a lot of food but becoming aware of that and either opting for a potluck or opting for better um, leftover food managing that's important too so becoming aware of your trade-offs this holiday season is important In the 1970s and 1980s, recycling started to become a bigger part of waste management. Kitchener is often cited as the pioneer for recycling participation with blue bins. However, as they reported earlier in 2019, a lot of our recycling waste is simply shipped out of other countries like the Philippines. What is causing our recyclable waste to not be processed? Well, recycling is a very complicated issue and part of for people who want to recycle, for the general public. Because first of all, there's different numbers of plastic and each one representing what recycling they can be. And many people think that, for instance, your cup of coffee from Starbucks, the whole thing can be recycled, but really it's only the lid and the paper um, holding thing on the outside. So what's causing our recyclables not to be processed is that people aren't taking the time to really to properly recycle their items and so once these um, objects or plastics get to the waste management sites a lot of the time because they're not being properly recycled they're contaminating other pieces of plastic or other pieces of paper within the blueprint bin program in Toronto, if let's say for instance you have a uh, pasta sauce, glass pasta sauce, with a bit of sauce inside, people put that in the recycling thinking it's going to be recycled, and then let's say that shatters and the pasta sauce gets out, well not only have you cost millions of dollars for that waste managing site that can't use this new recycled material and sell it off to companies who are interested in buying that now you've created this problem so becoming better informed of that and how to properly recycle 
is the steps that should be taken by people, but also creating more incentives for businesses to take, to create a demand for recycled products, because that's the reason many are not being recycled anyways. They end up being in landfills because there's not a demand for them. People aren't going to, we're not going to create this more circular economy where we use our waste. Then what's the point of having recycled items? So I totally agree with Anna. Um, in our organization, our volunteers has been doing surveys on the subway um, during lunch uh, to interview people, asking them, do you think their coffee cups are recyclable? And uh, more than half of them answer yes. And surprisingly, some of them think coffee cups are compostable which is very heartbreaking because that layer of plastic shouldn't belong to the uh, compost. Uh, and uh, that coffee cup or that a glass can contaminate, uh, according to statistics, 25% of recycling are rendered because of contamination. And some other statistics is in Canada, only 9% of plastic waste is recycled, and only 25% of Canada's waste paper and paperboard is recycled. So that is very shocking to people because when people put things in the blue bin, they think, um, okay, I did my job, I recycled, but it's, it's time to shift our uh, methodology instead of recycling we should focus like the golden rule reduce reuse and when you already bought something you recycle the um, the things that can be recycled um, and I agree like uh, recycling is very complicated they're, they're, they only get recycled if there is market for that and uh, we need to uh, bring more awareness with our consumption choices to uh, use more recycled items. Yeah. So yeah, I think uh, the public, it became a little bit more in the public in terms of where recycling was going when the Philippines uh, story came out where for several years there was um, 2,400 tons that we had sent over that was rejected and it took us several years to take it back and it kind of was a wake-up call that we actually do send send over uh, most of our recycling to um, historically China which last year they banned put a ban on uh, imports of recycling recycled goods so now we're dealing with it all in-house and so it's it's too much for we don't have enough infrastructure to deal with the recycled uh, materials that we have and so uh, recycling centers, they, some, some, I forget which municipalities, but they had to have government bailouts because they couldn't deal with the influx of recycled materials. They didn't know what to do with them. And often we think that all materials are created equal, but that's not true. Some plastics that are recycled or reused are sometimes recycled into Dollarama stuff. You know, they're very low quality plastic. And so you can't really use it for that much stuff. And so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And it's, it's been this marketing thing to use your blue bin or blue box and recycle, um, but it's actually not not quite the solution. And so we, we need to change the narrative um, a bit on that. 
We notice a lot of the responsibility to be environmentally conscious lies on us as consumers. However, there are limitations to how effective our individual change can be without our government leading it to effective policy. How can we be more effective advocates for the environmental actions from our government when their policies may not be as favorable of rapid change? From your organization's point of view, what are some things we can start to change in order to ensure we are not purchasing or discarding items such as ugly sweaters? So in general, the golden rule is reduce, reuse, and recycle. Um, I think for something like ugly sweaters, I don't know, something like a Christmas tree, can you really uh, stop? buying Christmas tree or reuse a Christmas tree or buy secondhand, right? Like something like an ugly sweater, I can think about you can you can do some DIY project if you have a red dress and you have a green scarf, then use them, them together and it can be very Christmassy. Just get creative and uh, be more conscious when you make uh, purchasing choices. Yes, I think. So just to add on to what was said, um, just generally bringing to light the impacts of fast fashion and how not only is it environmentally not friendly, but it also um, you know, creates very poor work environments for people overseas. And so it's important to note that even with the sales, I mean, it's hard to deny the sales, <coughs> but it is important to, to note. And so some, some ways that we can um, reduce our footprint in terms of fashion is through clothing swaps. There are a number throughout the city and you can find them, Eventbrite, um, there's a bunch at the Center for Social Innovation. You can even organize your own, so like within your own friend communities, um, just host one at your place or someone somewhere else and uh, exchange clothes and get a new wardrobe. Um, there's also an organization called Fashion Takes Action. They are incredible, they have lots of resources if you're super into um, fashion and want to reduce your footprint and learn more about that industry. Um, thrift shops are a good one to go to, as well as there's this up-and-coming sort of, uh, I wouldn't say industry, but um, a lot of social enterprises that uh, have fashion rentals. So there's Fresh Rents that was based out of the Center for Social Innovation, and you can essentially rent clothes, and there are a bunch of those throughout the city as well. I think lastly too, I mean, I, I will never learn how to sew. I try, I try to make this as a, as a resolution, but I, I cannot sew. But if you are keen to learn, it, it actually is a really useful skill in upcycling clothes. So there's a lot of upcycling vendors that know how to reuse and repurpose clothes, especially ones that you hold nostalgic and you want to make into something else. You can look to them to, to sew you something new. How can our listeners find out more about your groups and stay in the loop with your upcoming projects? So our funding opportunities are available to uh, U of T students, staff, alumni um, in all of three of our campuses. And a way to get connected, you can go to U-Turn online, just on Google type U-Turn, it'll be the first link. And also uh, we have a new Instagram page, uturn.uft, and you can get in touch there with our different events happening. And we have also the uturn.utsc, which is the Instagram page for the Scarborough campus. So yeah, make sure to 
contact us if you're a U of T student or U of T club looking for funding opportunities for an environmental initiative, contact us. We can help. So you can reach out to our nonprofit organization, Go Green Toronto, by Instagram. Our handle is Go Green TO. Uh, our Facebook called Go Green Toronto. Feel free to join us, follow our page, our, like our page, or if you want to volunteer, feel free to leave me a message, DM us. We are welcome, everyone, to join us. Okay, so you can reach us at on Instagram at evoke underscore creatives, or you can visit our website at www.evoke-creatives.com. And we're always looking for volunteers for our live music events. Come out, it's a good time. We also have a new program around bottles and cans collection. We're trying to make the nightlife scene in Toronto more sustainable. So if you would like to volunteer for that, we're also looking for people. Or if you just wanna connect, link us anytime. Thanks.